it's Name Taken Podcast. Welcome to my second bonus episode. I am your host, Michael Marshall. Each week, I celebrate the unique stories and shared Michael Marshall experiences of another Michael Marshall somewhere else in the world. Except again, none of that is true for this week. This is a bonus episode, right? My bonus episodes are a place where I can contain the really cool spillover from my Michael Marshall interviews. Um, I had just such a conversation with science writer Michael Marshall from episode seven. If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest hitting it up before or after listening to this one, just for some additional context about this Michael Marshall, his story, and his perspective. Over the course of discussing Michael's background as a science writer for New Scientist, BBC Earth, and more, we got into a pretty serious discussion about ethics and responsibilities in science journalism and the challenges of interpreting scientific findings and their significance to the public. This is an especially salient discussion for the moment since we touch on how science writers tackled COVID. Additionally, we explore a couple of the key themes of Michael's book, The Genesis Quest, in which he very comprehensively and entertainingly explores the history of the scientific study of life's origins on Earth. We also briefly discuss the factors outside of scientific practice, which guide the interpretation of scientific findings now and in the past. It's worth a listen before getting your own copy of Michael's book. So please enjoy this bonus episode. So I have, I have a question, actually, um, <clears throat> because I did... I haven't quite finished, but I've read almost, I've, I've read a good 75% of, of your book. And we're talking mm. about the Genesis Quest, which yeah. just, just came out a couple months ago, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, August in the UK, and then it was November in the States. Yeah, not too long ago. But the cool thing is um, that you are looking back through all these different theories on the the origins of life on Earth. But the the tie-in you make, which I think is so important, and, and you've kind of alluded to this perspective already, that there are cultural politics in play that shape the way people make conclusions and scientific interpretations. Mm. And you kind of lead with that, even in the introduction of your book, which I think is terrific, right? That there might have been some ways that French existentialist philosophy were guiding. Who was it that wrote Change and Necessity in 1970? Jacques Monod. So Monod was a French biochemist, like a Nobel Prize winning, very, very um, eminent one. He did an awful lot of work on the way that genes work and the way that genes interact mm. with other genes. Um, and yeah, this book of his Chance and Necessity, well, La Chance et la Necessité, um, was kind of his attempt to wrestle with what he saw as like the the, the moral and philosophical implications of biology as he then as he understood it um i have to say i did not like this mm -hmm. book at all like I, I i in the in the initial draft of the book of of the genesis quest i mean there was quite a lot more about chance and necessity quite a lot of which was like intensely sarcastic mm -hmm. and like <laughs> very very unimpressed and grumpy i think i one point i think i described him as sounding like nietzsche on a bad day and i think that might have actually Kept. That, might, that might have actually made it through to the final copy because I was quite proud yeah. of that. Um, <laughs> I remember encountering that. He, he was he, he was a a miserable git. I can I can only 
is the only inference I can draw from that book. Um, so, you know, he would, he wrote a lot about um, the idea of like, you know, evolutionary history and the idea that a, a lot of it has been random. The idea that, you know, that there's a huge amount of chance um, at work in the history of life on earth. Uh, you know, you don't have to imagine too many things having gone slightly differently than you and I wouldn't like have been born, wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. And if you imagine a few other things like not go, like going slightly differently, then maybe the human race wouldn't be here at all. And so, you know, like, I don't know, intelligent tyrannosaurs or something would be, um, would be dominating the planet. And, uh, I don't know, having arguments about postmodernism or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, and yeah, there is this sort of very particular strain of pessimism uh, in Mono's work. So he's sort of, he's very much in that sort of, you know, the, the universe is, is, is meaningless and it's all a bit bleak and we just have to sort of be like, resolute in a slightly Sartre-esque sort of way and just sort of, you know, smoke smoke our cigarettes and like stare slightly ironically at the distant horizon and like face our death with equanimity and this sort of thing. And I'm just a bit like, really? Like, do you not, fundamentally you need to watch more comedy, mate. Like, I don't disagree with you that like there's no ultimate meaning or like no built-in meaning to the universe or like, Unless you, he's like, I'm, I've been an atheist since I was like eight years old, and I, I don't sort of think that there is built-in pre-existing meaning. But we, we assign meaning. Like meaning comes from us. It's not something that's sort of out there waiting for us to like dig up. Sure. You assign your own meaning to the universe, and you, you assign your own um, importance to your life and your experiences of it. You can get a little bit too wrapped up in the cosmic and like forget that like you know there's people around you who like you know you know, just need food <laughs> and need a cuddle. And you know, there's a huge amount of like meaning and um, beauty in that. You know, I got very hacked off with Mono. And I when I finally got to the end of that book, I pretty much slammed it down <laughs> and was like, right, you are going to the charity shop uh, as soon as I'm done with this. Um, whereas, you know, many of the other books that I read and, you know, when I was researching the genesis because i was like oh this is actually you know i like this you know this is this is this is re this is really interesting even though I, you know there were lots of them that i didn't agree with or that were just outdated or whatever i was like no, you're just really funny and engaged and thoughtful and i have a huge amount of time for you so you know what you you're you're staying on the bookshelf uh whereas whereas mono yeah he's going to oxfam <laughs> uh, and I don't think you you necessarily talked about this, but you do, like I said, talk about a number of different points where this was a Soviet scientist. So, of course, he's going to incorporate elements of that into the way that he's mm -hmm. conceptualizing the beginning of life. But we're, you know, certainly in our moment, not standing on the only stable ground in history. So how are the contemporary theories of the origin origins of life a reflection of contemporary cultural politics in society? So I would say something small like that, uh, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> so one of the things I'd say is that um, when you've only got a handful of people studying a subject, it's really easy to get caught up in your cultural biases, right? So when this guy Parin came up with his idea in the 1920s, and when like the first sort of systematic or semi-systematic studies of the origin of life began in the 50s, you could count the number of like um, research labs that were doing this actively on one hand you know it was a really at first it was a quite small group of people and even even after like the first i don't know 20 years or so it's still not it's it was never a big community it was quite it was kind of small and kind of insular 
and there was also an element that they were seen as slightly fringe. I don't mean that they were sort of doing bad research mm. uh, or anything like that, but um, I think a lot of scientists at that uh, in the sort of mid twentieth century would, would kind of have taken the view that you can't answer this question. Like you, there's just no way to sure. find out. So why are you bothering? Like there's all these other sort of really live questions like, you know, what's DNA doing in ourselves? You know, how does the genetic code work? All this stuff, which was kind of immediately there. Uh, and the, the origin of life, I think a lot of people sort of saw it as this like distant mirage on the horizon that was, that was distracting these otherwise very bright and talented people. And, and that they was, you know, they were chasing this thing when they should have just been focusing on the stuff that you could actually solve. And so for, for all those reasons, I think that, yeah, the field, the people who are in the field got a lit, did get a little bit hidebound at first because it, because it was kind of niche and mm. kind of small, but that and also frankly very very male um like this is something that i noted in the book but like um in the course of the the story you know there's 14 chapters in the book the first woman appears in chapter four right she's on her own she's the only still the only woman in the chapter um and that's rosalind franklin um who played such a key role in the discovery of the structure of dna and then and even after that for like several chapters you hardly get there are hardly any women at all and i did look like i i sort of active when i was sort of going back through the literature i did sort of go yeah have the are there like because i knew who the sort of the sort of key famous figures were from from the eras but from all the sort of different eras but i went sort of looking at all their papers and like you know are there some women collaborators who've like just kind of got written out of the history books a bit you know there is this you know there's some sort of really key contributions from women researchers in these early days that i cut that we just haven't heard about and i couldn't find all that many examples. I could, certainly couldn't find examples of like women leading labs. Mm-hmm. And there's a frankly kind of grim story of like this a, lab, a female lab technician in one of the in one of the groups who did who did this like key experiment, and then but she didn't get her name on the paper. Um, she was in the acknowledgments at the end. It's you know, you know we give our thanks to. I think her name was Donna Keith. Um, she did the damn experiment. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> Normally, that means you get your name on the paper, but because you know, I guess she was a a lab technician and didn't have a PhD, she didn't get to. Whereas nowadays, the field is much bigger. It's it's much more international, and it's much more diverse in terms of the the the, the people who are in it. Um, you know, there are a lot of women researchers in the field. There are a lot of people of color. There are people, from, you know, there are people from all over. The world, you know, it used to be quite, you know, there's some American people, there's some, there's some Russian people, and a handful of other countries. It's much more, you know, spread out. You know, there's there's people from every continent, and that means there's just much less scope for groupthink, mm-hmm. and much less, you know, whatever sort of cultural preferences some of these people might have, um, they're going to be counterbalanced by the cultural preferences of somebody else, and it will sort of hopefully sort of come back somewhat rather more to like the actual experiments and the you know the and the sort of rigor of the actual theories you know the, the the models so my sort of sense of the field nowadays that it is a, it's much much healthier as like a field of scientific inquiry than it was if you were to sort of go back say fifty years you know there are now you know I said that in the early days there weren't any women leading labs there there are now lots of them mm-hmm. and that there's a quite strong push from the younger generation of researchers to to be less 
fixated on their pet hypotheses. They, they, mm-hmm. they, there was a, there was a group of them about um, a year or so ago who actually put out a sort of big review paper in one of the scientific journals. That the entire thrust of which was we aren't going to be tied to any of your existing um, hypotheses that you're all completely committed to. We're going to be open. We're going to be much more open minded, and we're just going to sort of do our experiments and see and be quite strict about what that experiment shows and what it doesn't show and we're not necessarily going to be tied to you know oh life must have begun in like a hydrothermal vent on the bottom of the sea or it must have formed in a hot spring on land we're going to be open-minded about that because we don't think we've got enough information to really be confident yeah at least not confident that our idea is right and your idea is wrong this yeah this was a published paper where they literally just came out and said all of that um quite quite firmly (laughs) And it makes, I have to say, you know, because I'm still covering the field even now, and it it does just make for much nicer conversations because you, you know, it's not that they're not critical, but it's that, but it is again that sort of measured, sort of careful criticism of, well, you know, they obviously that you know they've shown that X leads to Y, but does that necessarily then lead to Z? So the 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 TLDR version of that is that I guess the field I think used to be quite hagbind and quite tied up with perhaps. And culturally shaped preferences but because it's become so much more diverse i think it, that's much less of a problem now i so as a science journalist like a, a lay public sort of looks to science journalism to interpret the truth that is derived out of scientific practice but we're looking at people who aren't really thinking about science as this revelation of truth or objectivity in a way that we might have in the past so what is your role as someone who's communicating the not just the findings of scientific experiments, but also the cultural of like the culture of science to a public, I'd say that my role is to try and communicate all those different aspects and to, mm-hmm. and essentially to to read a load of stuff and talk to a load of people so that they don't have to. Uh, <laughs> is sort of is probably the, the the easiest way to sum it up. So. If we just talk about like scientific culture, I mean, I've already touched on the idea of like toxic behavior in in some fields, and and I think there used to be a feeling among a lot of science journalists, mm. not that that wasn't worth covering, but that people wouldn't care if you did. Um, that people, you know, that the people who were reading you know science magazines or the science section of the newspapers weren't interested in necessarily particularly finding out if like oh this scientist is like a bully to his subordinates or whatever they just wanted to know the the actual right. science you know they wanted to you know they wanted to know the discoveries that was what they you know they wanted to know about the dinosaurs or like the asteroid <laughs> asteroid collision whatever and then i'd say that probably the the tipping point was buzzfeed uh and their news division which sort of came on you know came on stream within the last decade or so i got i hope i'm getting my dates right um, but BuzzFeed did a lot of, have done a lot of stories uh, exposing scientific misconduct of one kind or another, and apparently people do care. Uh, it turns it turns out that if you're you know uh, a famous um, astronomer who's noted for discovering loads of exoplanets, but you're also a really really horrible human being um, who mm. behaves abominably to your students and your colleagues, then it turns out that is actually something that people will want to know about. And that, that I'm not I can't actually remember the guy's name, but you can look it up. <laughs> there have been a lot of stories now coming out about you know sort of um sexual harassment in certain fields of science or bullying um or the, you know the, the ways in which um 
the the scientific mm-hmm. career progression kind of system, can systematically disadvantage certain people like women for example because because you're expected to just just churn out papers and if you're not sort of like regularly publishing a whole bunch of stuff uh, you know of significant new findings then you're not going to get funding for the next thing and you probably won't get tenure and you won't get that that professorship that you want um and so you know if you have to take a career break to for example give birth um that can like get counted against you and that can actually like disadvantage you completely unfairly that stuff is actually being talked about a lot now and not and not just in the specialist scientific journals where it was once you know which 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 to their credit have always written about this it's now being talked about more widely um and you know i and again this this you know when i wrote the genesis quest i didn't shy away from that side of things you know there was one one of the scientists who cropped up in the story quite briefly has a child pornography mm-hmm. conviction. And I was like, that's got to go in. Um, like I, cause I wasn't prepared to just mention his work and not like add that gigantic character destroying. It's not a caveat exactly because it doesn't, it doesn't affect in the slightest, like whether his findings were any good or not, as far as I can tell they were, but if all I do, if all I had done was to say, you know, oh, the, oh, this person discovered this thing and that, that makes him sound like quite a cool person. <laughs> that makes him sound like you know this this, you know, this, this interesting person who's prob- probing the bounds of of human knowledge, um, which he was, but also doing some some other stuff. Uh, and I kind of thought, you know, I need to give like it's important to give the the full flavor of this person in terms of like dealing with like scientific fact and truth and like what what the public kind of needs or wants to know Mm. i mean this is all this has all become very acute of course uh in the in during the covid19 pandemic right um Mm -hmm. of like what is it what should you report which findings should you like bring to people's attention Mm -hmm. and the level of savviness that you need to show in terms of you know there is a tradition, and I think this is particularly, this is perhaps more so in British journalism than American journalism. Of like, if you find a, a kind of contrarian-looking study that something that seems surprising, something that sort of goes against the grain, you're really going to be attracted to that, and you might well publish a story about it, even if everyone that you contact about it, every expert that you contact about it, says it's complete bullshit. Right now, clickbait. Um, we right. we love it too. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in some fields, it's sort of possibly harmless, or not. Well, it's, it's, I think it's, I don't think it's ever really harmless. Mm-hmm. Um, but if but if you if all you're talking about is like you know some slightly eccentric hypothesis about the story of human evolution, for example, there's no direct harm from that. Although I think that propagating this idea that scientists are just kind of making it up as they go along actually is kind of corrosive in a sort of slow burn mm-hmm. sort of a way. But certainly, yeah. When you're but when you're dealing with a pandemic and lives are on the line and mental health is on the line and the economy is on the line, all, yeah, everything everything is at risk. You do have to sort of sit back and really think about what you're doing. And I think one of the things that I was always quite keen on, anyway, but which but which is sort of becoming more of a a more popular line of thought now, is that you shouldn't be doing that many stories that are only based on one study because mm-hmm. that one study could well just be an outlier or it could just be an accident, could just be wrong. You know, even if it's statistically significant and all of that, 
unless that study is like gargantuanly powerful, you want to bring in the other studies in that same area. So it should be less, oh, look, this new study has come out about like, I don't know, does red meat cause cancer? Okay, fine. What about the other 500 studies that have come out on that bloody subject? What do they all say? How does this one, where does this one sort of fit in the spectrum? Is this one particularly good? Or is something else better? And, that, and if it turns out this new one with its sort of shiny new results isn't actually all that compared to some of the previous studies, I, I tend to think that you shouldn't really cover it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not as a standalone story. You might want to bring it into like, you know, a larger story that you do on that subject. I mean, this is sort of a, there's this long running argument that a lot of scientists will make that um, science isn't really suited to news. Mm-hmm because so much of it is unfolds slowly over many years and it's an accumulation of um you know multiple results that all sort of go to sort of support whatever idea it is you know yeah there's no single experiment that like demonstrates the theory of evolution is correct right there there wasn't any sort of dramatic turning point where someone did like one little thing and it's like oh wow well okay well that settles it then it was an accumulation of a vast amount of stuff. You know, Dar- you know, Charles Darwin himself spent like years and years accumulating information before he finally wrote Origin of Species. And even and even after that, it was decades and decades before biologists as a sort of group went, okay, fine, we're gonna yeah, this is de- this is definitely basically right and we're and we're go- and we're going with it. So the idea that you would sort of have like a oh look, shiny shiny new study has just come out and this tells us some new thing is often kind of suspect. Mm-hmm. There's, I think there's some areas where you can do this sort of thing, like particularly in animal behavior. Animal behavior is a good example, right? Because often, often a study there will be literally, we sat in a forest uh, for some time and we watched whatever animal it is, and they did a thing that we've never seen them do before. Right. Great. Fine. You can, yeah, that that is a legitimate, straightforward. We saw them do it. We've never seen it before. That is new. That's news. You know. Um, right. You know, the first time someone saw a chimpanzee um, using a tool, for example, yeah. that was well, def- that was it. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a legitimate bit of news. But on these sort of perpetual questions of like, you know, does like this food stuff or that stuff cause cancer, uh, or which, or you know, does this particular diet actually help you lose weight? These are like really sort of thorny questions, and people have been, you know, sci- you know professional scientists have been wrestling with them for decades and haven't. I would argue solved a lot of them. So you kind of have to have that in mind of like, you know, what is this thing that I'm writing about? You know, is it something that I can just sensibly deliver as like one little new thing? Or is it part of this huge long running question that's like, you know, and in which case is doing like a little new story about it really the best way. So a lot of the best COVID coverage, you know, coming back to that, hasn't been about individual studies. It's been about, well, what is long COVID? You know, what is this long-term chronic thing that so many people are getting? And so, and so that, and so the stories about long COVID, I mean, I've written one myself, you know, they will sort of draw like, what's the testimony from the people who, who have this, what studies have been done on about it? You know, what do we know about the, the changes that are going on in people's lungs and in the rest of their bodies? What do we know about the exhaustion and fatigue that comes with it? Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of drawing together all this stuff. In all, all this sort of often disparate material in order to sort of try and make sense of it. I think good journalism's role is much more about that these days than it is about um, individual gotcha moments. There are sometimes individual gotcha moments, mm-hmm. but if you're sort of, but if you're every week looking for like, oh, you know, what's the like 
the dramatic thing that's going to overturn um, something, most weeks you're not going to find it because it because that's just not how this works. That's not how science works. It's not how the discovery of knowledge works. Yeah, so much of journalism, of good science journalism, is instead, is instead identifying what's a key question to ask, um, whether that's something that's you know socially relevant or whether it's just something like how did life begin that's just sort of, sort of pure interest, and then actually pulling together what's been done about that. I mean, I guess you know another sort of famously charged example would be something like you know to what extent does the American police kill black people more than it does white more than they do white people and you know the, it's not a entirely simple question to answer because the people who would sort of defend the police will say something like well okay you know maybe if you look at the raw numbers yes black people are being killed disproportionately but isn't that because you know they're all they're, they're disproportionately likely to be involved in criminal activity and you then have to sort of dig a bit deeper into the literature to find out that well actually that doesn't really seem to bear itself out. You know, they are disproportionately stopped for, and often found not to be doing anything untoward whatsoever. But you you could you can easily imagine that the the way that a journal a not terribly engaged journalist who's sort of seeking seeking the exciting headline would tackle it. They would go, oh, you know, you know, they would see the the raw figures, right? Fine, looks looks bad for the american police and then they'd get that contrarian that view of like well maybe it's just because all black people are criminals they're not there you go i could put that that's my headline that will be clicky lots of people will read that yeah that you know that would be provocative <laughs> you know probably get me on a talk show or something and i would say that that's not actually that sort of thing is not really serving the public it's not actually helping them what the way that you help them is by sifting through all this stuff and actually trying to get to the root of what's there. That doesn't necessarily mean that you sort of have to come up with a definitive answer or def definitive explanation, but it does mean that you can't just be that sort of lazy, do that lazy thing of like, oh, well, like, here, here's the here's the immediate catchy line. Mm -hmm. Let's go with that. This the whole the whole thing of like um, the police disproportionately killing black people is um, it's it's horribly emotionally charged for obvious reasons but it's also it's also complicated because it does seem to vary across different bits of the states there are some states that some districts even where the disproportionality is astonishingly high like horribly so and then there are other parts where it seems to be much more where there doesn't seem to be as much of a difference and you have to and you then you then you actually get something that's sort of potentially useful what's different what's sort of seemingly good about some of these police forces and bad about the other ones? What are the actual differences in how they're being trained or how they're being run or how they're dealing with the community? What what can we possibly actually identify as being a root cause of this and what can we fix? You know, is it at the high you know, is it at the hiring level or the training level? Is it is it all of those things? Good journalism is essentially just a sort of extension of good science. It's, it's trying to get to the actual, uh, the facts of the matter as best as you can and trying to find the explanation as best you can and not, not just leaving it on whatever is the most catchy thing to get your thing shared. Like, obviously you do want it shared because you want people to read it because if people don't read it, it has no impact. But if all you do is sort of write to that, then you're, it, then it creates a kind of lazy contrarian controversialist i'm just i'm essentially just poking the bear kind of approach that isn't going to help anyone in the long run and again we definitely see that with covid you see you, know, you see so many quite prominent quote unquote journalists you know, that, you know these little lockdown skeptics who are like you know lockdowns don't save lives 
of course they bloody do mate how do, it's a respiratory virus like it spreads from person to person if you separate people it can't spread it is that bloody simple there uh, this is not to say that i'm any kind of an enthusiast for a lockdown right because you know we're you know we're recording this on a day when we've been homeschooling my kid for weeks because we've been in a bloody lockdown right it's awful i hate it but it does bloody save lives and it does stop the spread of the virus you can't you if you are trying to sort of come up with some sort of contrarian argument for how that's not true you are literally arguing against like basics of like you breathe it out of your mouth and it goes through the air and it goes into the other person's mouth like it's, it's as basic as that I mean, one of the things that yeah the, the really striking things of course is that um the number of flu cases uh in the uk where we've had relatively strict lockdowns has like has crashed hardly anyone has had the flu this year i noticed that yeah but this sort of thing because it's sort of yeah you know, oh it's it's a bit it's different and it's kind of exciting and it's and you can tie it into um cultural and socio-political narratives uh, you know it's there's this sort of weird link between like people who don't like the idea of lockdowns don't like the idea of wearing masks don't like the idea of any kind of public health restrictions to stop the virus um who are also the often the kind of people who will sort of bang on about like cancel culture and excessive wokeness and the idea that their freedom of speech is being impinged because they get criticized for what they said mm-hmm. there there's something somewhat psychological and socio-political going on there that I'm not sure that I could sort of fully parse out, but it's it's all the same damn people over and over again saying the same kinds of things in these different spheres. And again, I, you can call, I suppose you can call it comment journalism if you like, you can call it opinion, but it's just crap opinion. A good opinion piece should still be fact-checked. It should still bear resemblance to reality. Uh, yeah, you can, yeah, you might. Right. Yeah, it, it's then on you as the opinion writer to actually justify whatever the hell it is you're trying to say. If you're, if you genuinely want to try and argue that we shouldn't have a lockdown um, when cases are spiking, okay, fine. Try and find your argument for that, but don't do it by denying the reality of what separating people does. You're gonna mm-hmm. have, you're gonna have to work harder. You have to, do, you should do better. Because you know, of course, there are costs to lockdowns. There, there are huge costs and huge and uh side effects for want of a better word you know and you know those and that's not something that you can just sort of wish away and ignore which is what you know it's why you don't want to have to go into lockdowns more than any more often than you need to or for any longer than you, you absolutely have to michael marshall thank you so much for joining me oh thank you very much no it's been a, it's been a lot of fun i'd like to thank michael marshall once again for this thoughtful chat If you liked this Michael Marshall's perspectives on science journalism and his passion for the study of life's origins, I sincerely recommend his book, The Genesis Quest. I can totally recommend it as a fun, thoughtful, productively critical, and accessible piece of science writing. And that's it for this episode. On episode eight next week, I share my interview with South African creative polymath Michael Marshall of Michael Marshall Arts. All right, well, if you or someone you know is a Michael Marshall, or if you just have a common name, reach out and share your story. Thanks. Thanks.